This episode is brought to you by the Women's Network. Being ambitious is good. And I applaud you all and I encourage you to follow your dreams and do your thing. But success isn't everything. And remember to not put all of your self-worth into your success. And remember that you're still valuable, whether you hit your goal or not, you're still valuable and you're still lovable and you're going to be okay. And you can always redefine what your goals are. If something isn't working, try something new. Wow. Well, hello, everyone. This is so exciting. And welcome to our first episode of season three of Redefining Ambition. I'm Jamie Vinnick, the host of this podcast and the founder and president of the Women's Network, or TWN, which produces Redefining Ambition. I founded TWN because I wanted to connect with ambitious, high-achieving women in a non-competitive environment and have conversation on topics such as building confidence, networking authentically, combating barriers that disproportionately affect women when entering and advancing in the workplace, being resilient, and more, all of which is seldom discussed in the classroom environment. The original story, which some of you may know, behind the idea to found TWN stems from the time I attended an event when I was a freshman in college and a very powerful woman was invited to speak about her career there was very little discussion centered around gender, intersectionality, and some of the challenges she confronted in successfully ascending in her career. I remember thinking at the time that it was such a missed opportunity to have conversations on topics I just listed, and that there needed to be a better way to facilitate these discussions. Since March of 2020, TWN went national and has grown to become one of the largest collegiate women's networking organizations in the nation, home to a community of over 33,000 women. In TWN, we speak often about the power of community and having access to an expansive network, as well as celebrating your own ambition. This podcast will continue to explore all of that through nuanced interviews, conversations, and content. When we think about our own definitions of success and what society traditionally upholds as the platinum standard of what success looks like or should look like, often what comes to mind includes accolades, awards, money, fame, fancy titles. What may surprise you is to hear the responses, the reflections, from the guests who come on our show and explore their own definitions of success and how their thinking has evolved as they've become more senior in their careers. Redefining Ambition will continue to explore the intersections of ambition, success, career advancement and growth, networking, gender, and more through storytelling advice and candid reflections on their challenges, mistakes, hardships, successes, and wins. We have so much in store, and I'm really excited for you to hear so many of the powerful stories that are shared. It takes a village to produce a podcast, and this could not have been done without our entire podcast committee and our executive producer, Max Onderdonk. A new episode will be released every Tuesday, and we would love to hear from you. So make sure you're following us on Instagram at Redefining Ambition and connect with me as well at Jamie Vinnick. Okay, I'm thrilled to introduce our first guest of season three, Bonnie McKee, a Grammy-nominated singer, songwriter, filmmaker, and producer whose music has collectively sold more than 30 million, yes, you heard that right, 30 million copies worldwide. I randomly came across her content on TikTok and was captivated by her ability to so naturally write these massively successful hits. Bonnie began singing and writing songs at a young age and moved to L.A. by 16, where she later was signed to a record label. Although her music was critically praised, it did not commercially succeed as well as originally anticipated. She was later dropped from the label and has publicly spoken about falling into a dark place before she ultimately relaunched her career as a songwriter. She went on to successfully write smashing hits, including 10 songs that reached number one on the charts, such as Teenage Dream, California Girls and Dynamite, and has written with artists that you might have heard of, like Britney Spears, Katy Perry, Kesha, Kelly Clarkson, Cher, Adam Lambert, Christina Aguilera, and more. 
In 2020, Bonnie produced and wrote a short film, April Kills the Vibe, that has earned her over 40 awards and nominations. In this episode, we cover topics ranging from resilience and bouncing back from failure to the importance of collaboration to what it was like to write with some of the biggest artists of our time to her songwriting process and her reflections on success and ambition. I want to also give a trigger warning that there is conversation on essay. Head to our Insta at Redefining Ambition and at the Women's.network and let us know what you think. Hope you enjoy the episode. Okay, well, I'm so excited and honored to welcome Bonnie McKee to Redefining Ambition. It's such an honor to have you on. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So you have an incredibly inspiring career and background and backstory, and I want to get into all of that. Um, And I know that the listeners are going to be and feel just as inspired as I am. Um, (laughs) Today is the day that Taylor Swift released Red Taylor's version, and there's been a lot of conversation about songwriting and the music industry. So this is very relevant topics of conversation. So I'm very excited about this, but I want to get into your background, you came and broke into the industry at a very early age and music must have had Mm -hmm. a really profound influence and impact on your early upbringing and your life. So I would love to better understand where you grew up. I know you grew up in Seattle and the impact that music had on your life, your early upbringing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always knew from the time I was a little girl that I wanted to be a singer and I wanted to be a musician. I remember the first time I was ever, <laughs> this is so random, uh, I was ever moved to to play music was I watched a lot of TV. I say in my song, American Girl, I was raised by a television and I really do feel that way. I feel like I learned so many life lessons from watching TV. And also there was a lot of music that I was exposed to. Um, and like on Nickelodeon, they would play like old shows and whatever. And I remember hearing the MASH theme song, which is like an old thing from the seventies about the Vietnam war. And like the theme song is so beautiful and haunting. It's just like a, a, an instrumental thing. And the song is actually called suicide is painless. And I remember being like six years old and hearing that and just feeling so moved and having no idea what it was called or anything and going to the piano and sitting down and picking it out by ear and like having this epiphany that like, it was so cool that sound could make me feel something. And I knew that I wanted to learn how to do that. <laughs> so um, I started, my, my father was musical. He's a doctor, but, you know, he was in, in a band back in the day and um, he got us a karaoke machine at home. And so we would sing, you know, stuff from musicals, Fan of the Opera and Les Mis and the Beatles and um, Mamas and Papas and stuff like that. So um, I, I grew up listening to like old school music. I still have a lot of influence of like, you know, decades and decades ago music. And I always wrote poetry as well as a kid. And so I knew I wanted to be a singer, but I didn't know that being a songwriter was even a thing. I never even thought about where the songs came from, from the musicians that I love so much. And then when I was about 12 years old, I made a little demo of just cover songs. Um, I loved Fiona Apple and, uh, you know, Whitney Houston and stuff. And I made a demo and gave it to a friend of my mom's who was in the industry. And he said, that's great. You can sing, kid, but can you write? And I had secretly been writing since, you know, elementary school. So I took that challenge to heart. I went home. I I tried my hand at songwriting. And then I recorded a demo a few years later and gave it to everyone I knew. And then this is, I don't think this kind of thing happens anymore, but I gave it to a friend who babysat for someone who knew someone in Los Angeles. (laughs) And they called me and uh, flew me down to LA and they played my my demo on a show called The Morning Eclectic on uh, KCRW. And there was a bidding war and I ended up getting a record deal at 16 years old and I I moved down to Los Angeles by myself then. Yeah. So that's kind of how I broke into things. (laughs) Oh my gosh. So when you're in elementary school, just when you're young, I would say a lot of people say that they want to be singers or songwriters. Were you taken seriously when you would say that? Did you always know you were a singer? Uh, I would always sing at the talent show. And like, I was in school plays and stuff. I was like Annie in the school play before I had my fake red hair. (laughs) And, and yeah, people always said to me like, Oh, like one day you're going to be famous or one day you're going to, you know? And so, yeah, it was just, 
I always knew that was what I wanted to do. And my parents knew that too. And it was just kind of understood in my family that that, that was my gift and that was where I was going. Wow. Wow. I think I said when I was like four years old that I wanted to sing and I was checked into reality very fast. So, <laughs> um, oh, that's, so you fly down to LA, move there by yourself at age 16. Yes. Were you still in school at that point? Were you doing things online? You'd probably uh-huh. know so many people. What was the process? <clears throat> well, yeah, the only people I knew were like my manager and, and my attorney and like their record executives. So like I didn't have any friends my age. Uh, all of my peers were still in high school. I got kicked out of high school actually in the ninth grade. Um, I was like a drug addict up. And, um, so they got rid of me and then I went to alternative school for a minute. I tried some like running start classes at the community college and whatever. My dad really wanted me to go to college, but I just already knew what I wanted to do. And so I got my GED just to appease my father. And, um, yeah. And I just came down to LA and and did my thing. (laughs) Oh, okay. So you're in LA and you, they have this demo how did you take your career to the next step? I mean, a lot of people moved to LA. There's so much talent there. There is, but there isn't. And <laughs> also, how did you know who to trust? I didn't have a choice. You know, it was kind of like, these are the people I know. And I was lucky enough to get in with some people that actually were connected. And um, my attorney got me a great record deal at Warner Brothers. And everybody seemed to really believe in me. But I really didn't have any idea how it worked. I didn't know the difference between a producer or a mixer or a songwriter or anything. Um, So I just kind of came down and they put me in the studio and I would record my songs. I, when I started, was never put in the room with other songwriters. And now, like when I work with young, brand new artists, I'm just like, damn, that would have been nice (laughs) to have somebody teach me how to do it because I didn't know what I was doing. And like, when I listened back to my first album, which I'm very embarrassed about, by the way. Uh, but when I listened to it, I'm just like, why did they let me put this out? Like, why didn't they put me in with anybody? I think that they were just like, Oh, you're a genius. Like, go, you're, you're fine. And I'm just like, I, I did not know anything about song structure or, you know, a lot of my lyrics were really cryptic and like super, super personal, but like hard to even know what the hell they're about. If you don't know my story, you know? Um, so yeah, so I just, I I came down and they put me in the studio and I made an album and I really thought like I made it because I got a record deal and that is just the tip of the iceberg. And I I thought that all of my woes would be over, but no, no, that was just the beginning. I was like thrown to the wolves of Hollywood and really had to fend for myself and learn a lot of lessons the hard way. Hmm. It's such a great point you make. I think a lot of people think once you get this record deal, that that is the goal, the dream when you're just beginning. You sign mm-hmm. it, everything is now falling into place. And that's just not the case, as you mentioned. So what was the first thing that happened to you that made you realize that's actually not the case, that this is just the tip of the iceberg? I think that I expected like when they went to radio with the song, that it was just like, if you get on the radio, then all of a sudden you're rich and you blow up and everybody knows your name. And that's just not how it works. It's so incredibly uh, competitive. And they also wanted to go with a ballad first, which I was very much against, but I didn't, I trusted that they knew what they were doing. And so I was like, okay, fine. And then um, I was stuck in this kind of like adult contemporary genre where like, I wanted to be Britney Spears. I wanted to be Madonna, but I was like stuck being the singer songwriter girl behind a piano. And I was just like, how did I get here? (laughs) Um, And to be fair, like I visually, my performances and everything, I wanted them to look like Madonna and my attitude was very Madonna, but this music that came out of me was very like kind of deep and singer songwritery. So it's like, there was a disconnect between my image and who I thought I was and then the art that I was creating. So it took me a long time to figure out how to sort of match the two. At the time and thinking through your 16 year old lens, were you motivated by success, fame, money? Were you just trying to get by? Were you trying to prove something to your parents? (laughs) I just felt like, I mean, the thing that's always motivated me is 
this term has become so overly saturated, but I'm like an empath. And I always felt like even when I just played little shows in Seattle or whatever, the response that I would get from people that was so genuinely like, oh, your music helped me. You moved me like that really, really motivated me and made me feel like I had a purpose and that it wasn't just about fame and fortune and whatever. Like I wanted to reach a big audience and connect with people in that way. Cause I think I, I mean, I had friends and stuff, but I, I, I felt very uh, kind of like a lone wolf my whole life. And I felt a connection with an audience that I never was able to really find in my personal life. Um, so that was really the motivation. I mean, I guess validation at the core of it is really what I needed and wanted, you know, just songwriting. Was that a way that was more therapeutic to connect with other people since it was harder to find that socially in middle school? high yeah. school? Yeah. I think that I was really, um, kind of in survival mode as a teenager and, uh, I, I like to play it tough. And then my music was a place where I could really be honest and vulnerable. Um, and I think that was what people connected with most about my music. So, um, so yeah, that was a way for me to speak my truth and, and feel seen and feel like I wasn't alone, you know? So your career just starts to take off. You're so young. You're not even an adult yet. And um, what were people saying to you? What were they saying about your music? What were you beginning to do? You're just writing song after song or what? How did that materialize? You know, that was like one of the biggest lessons that I learned in the music industry was just that people are full. And it's not that I don't think that they believed in me or whatever, but um, I think that they really I see people I see A&Rs and labels do this with young artists all the time where they're just like, you're a star. Like, oh yeah. And like when this goes platinum and blah, 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 blah. And it's like, it, when you're telling a, an immature mind, all of these over the top things, like you tend to trust them because they're grown ups <laughs> and uh, they're in the biz, you know, but I think it's really important to manage young artists expectations because then when that doesn't happen, you have this huge resentment towards the world and towards God where you're just like, why, you know, this was, I deserve this. Like I've earned this and you really haven't earned it yet. You know, when you're just starting out, like you got to earn your stripes. That's a great point. So you continue writing music mm -hmm. and what, what happens next? What you you're signed with this label. People are I'm sure anxious to get going with their music. They want to achieve success, not to sign this. They have these very high expectations. Did you, was it hard for you to manage your expectations? What happened next? Uh, yeah, I was really convinced that this was all going to blow up. It didn't happen. I mean, that's just pretty much everybody's story. It's like a rite of passage to get signed and get dropped and whatever. Long story short, I was, I was stuck at the label for a long time. And then when I got dropped, I thought that my life was over. Like I thought that I was washed up at, you know, 20 or 21 or however old I was when I was dropped. That was what I had sort of heard people saying in the industry is like, oh, she got dropped. So like, <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> but I, I was broke. I had spent all the money for my advance and I didn't have hot water for a while. I didn't, my cell phone was turned off. I didn't have a car. Um, and I was really struggling and I, I was just like, what am I going to do? Like, do I have to go back to Seattle and like get a retail job? Like, I don't know what, I don't have any life skills other than being an artist. So I was really afraid, <laughs> but I started singing demos, uh, just to get by. And then I met, um, a producer that I really clicked with who ended up being my boyfriend for a long time, actually. Um, and he was a songwriter. And a producer, and he was like making music for big artists. And I was like, oh, there's like people behind these other projects. I've been so isolated, you know? And so I was like, well, I can write songs. Like, let me in, you know, let me in, coach. And um, and I started writing songs and ended up getting a very small publishing deal. And publishers are kind of like an agent for a songwriter where they give you an advance and then they put you in different rooms with other songwriters and producers. And uh you know, hook you up with labels and stuff to kind of sell your songs to artists um, or have you collaborate with artists that also write. 
And so I started learning how the publishing world works and it was a grind, but I was just, I was really happy to be around people my age that were doing what I love to do and people that had a work ethic and that weren't just like, you know, I mean, there's, there's nothing wrong with people that follow the regular path and go to college and, you know, have other dreams, but I just didn't know anyone that was on the same path that I was on. So I felt like I found a community in the songwriting world. A lot of people, and I'm sure a lot of listeners right now just heard you say, I did not have cell service or a working cell phone. I didn't have running hot water. They would have packed up their bags, gone back home and figured out a way to survive. And you did not do that. No, I, you know, I had gotten too close. I, I knew that I was like in the realm and I had been like an industry darling. And so I was like, I know that there's got to be another way. And I think that a big part of my story is about getting back up and doing it again. And I've had so many lives in this industry and, you know, it gets easier <laughs> the longer you go, where it's like failure is, is part of learning how to succeed is like learning, learning what not to do. And also not to take things personally. If an opportunity doesn't work out, it's like, that's just not in, in the plan for me. And, you know, it's, it's still difficult to hear no, but it gets a lot, it gets easier the more times you hear it (laughs) because you just, you know, you have to get creative and find another way. Mm. Uh, And you're building character, you're building resilience as you go along. It also sounds like you happen to come across the right people at the right time. So you're finally, you found your community Mm -hmm. You met at the time what became your boyfriend. You started writing music. Mm -hmm. How did your your this new life, this career transform. You started writing music. What was what was happening at that point? Well, I actually, when I was broke and didn't know what to do with myself, I was selling my clothes at a thrift store in Hollywood, and um, I met a girl named Catherine Hudson, and um, she came up to me. And was like, "Oh, you're Bonnie McKee." Like, I she had heard my first album. She was like, "I love your work," and I was like, "Oh, thank you." Like. I got recognized in public, you know, I was like so excited. And she's like, I'm a singer too. And I write songs and I was like, oh, cool. And I I mean, I hadn't met anybody yet that did what I did. That was my age. And so I was so excited to have a friend in the industry. So we were fast friends. This is before she had ever, this is Katy Perry, by the way. Um, So like a year later, she put out her first album, One of the Boys and she ended up asking me to come and collaborate on the second album for Teenage Dream. And yeah, we were just, we were a great team. We, we had a similar writing style and process, um, which is a big part of finding a collaborator that you click with is just someone that works the same way you do. Cause there are, there are people that are super talented that we just have a different process. And so it's like, I can respect you and love you and support you, but I, we don't know how to make something together. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or it's like more of a struggle, but Katie and I really hit it off and clicked in studio. Catherine Hudson. That is gosh, being there at the right place at the right time. <laughs> what, what is the process like? How, I know that's very vague, but generally what is your process? You know, I had an epiphany back in that time when I was like trying to figure out how to write a a large volume of songs because I, before that I had always been like, oh, like I write songs when the mood strikes, you know, Uh, and that's not going to happen every single day. So I started making a list of song titles and, um, and then when I would go in the studio and someone would play some chords and I'd, I would, I would hear a beat, usually in pop music, there's a producer that will make a track, like I'll write to an already made track. Or sometimes we'll start from scratch and I'll play chords or whatever, but I'll listen to the chords and I'll say, oh, is this a happy song? Is this a sad song? Is this a party time? Is it sexy? Is it, you know? Um, And then I sort of look at my list of titles and try to match the vibe of the title to the vibe of the track. Um, And when I'm writing with an artist like Katie, who is a great songwriter in her own right, I just, I listen to them. I ask them what they're going through, what keeps them up at night, what's their relationship status, you know, what's your relationship with your parents like, you know? Um, And we try to sort of dig in and get to the core of what the artist wants to express. And then I'm sort of like a translator where I'll, you know, we'll ping pong ideas back and forth. Yeah. That's pretty much how a song is born. Do you see color? Do you see certain things when you hear chords? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I guess there's like a name for that, but 
synesthesia or something like that? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. I mean, I feel like everybody claims to have that, but I don't know. Yes, I do see colors and I see pictures and I, I mean, it's, it's a mood. It's a vibe. It's like, I close my eyes and I think about like, what does the movie look like that this music would be in, you know, and what's the story that's being told. And I always see music videos when I write songs. (laughs) And honestly, I feel like, you know, watching MTV, growing up watching MTV, I was, I was so inspired back when they used to play music videos, I was so inspired by the music video part of it. I was just like, you know, I love the costumes and the dancing and like the visual aspect was such a big part of that for me, um, inspiring me to want to get into music. So yeah, when I write songs, I, I definitely see a music video in my head. How did Katie or Catherine recognize you in the thrift shop? Did you have red hair? Were you known at that time? Like I said, I was kind of like an industry darling at the time. Like everyone in LA knew who I was, um, but nobody really else did. <laughs> um, I mean, I had I had done a tour and um, the song had been on the radio and in a couple of movies and stuff. But, you know, when you're in the industry, you, you know what everybody's gossiping about and who's coming up and who's doing what. Yeah. And I think that there, there weren't a whole lot of girls doing the kind of stuff that we were doing, which was singer, songwriter, pop music, you know. So yeah, and I always look the same. <laughs> I look the same as I did when I was 18, you know. Oh, beautiful, beautiful long hair, blue <laughs> eyes. Yes, you're, you're so sweet. Um, it's true. So how has your definition of fame or success, how has that evolved at the time when you're 16? It probably looks very differently than it is growing up with a lot of people in the industry and you yourself experiencing recognition, even in a thrift shop. Yeah. I think that, you know, I mean, that was a very long time ago. I'm old guys just say no. This was like, you know, the beginnings of my space. Like this wasn't, there wasn't Instagram or Twitter or any of that. So fame was really defined by whatever the media gave you, you know, you would see what's on MTV, you would hear what's on the radio and you would read what's in Rolling Stone. And like, that was really the only way that you would make it or do anything. Um, and these days it's completely different. There's like, there's all kinds. I mean, with social media is so incredible because the artist really has a direct line to their audience. And it used to be that you really needed those gatekeepers to have radio, uh, TV or press in order to make anything happen or have anybody know who you are. And so it's a really beautiful thing that you know, anybody can have an audience, but it's also so much more saturated. It's so competitive. There's just so much content. So it's harder to break through nowadays. But on the other hand, like if you put in the work, then you can make it happen. And I think that's really great. And, you know, I think that people also are, are too hard on like influencer people. And it's like, oh, like, what do you even do? Like that is a full time job. So kudos to people that are like, doing their TikTok thing or Instagram or whatever, like it's really difficult to make content that connects with the masses. So if you're able to break through and do that, like good for you, <laughs> it's hard to do. Yes. No, I, I agree with you. I found Bonnie listeners on TikTok. Yes. So you end up co-writing California girls, mm-hmm. huge hits, teenage dream. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. So it, what was what was that like to have the music published, released, listened to by the mass? It was crazy because I had been struggling for so long and I had had so many almosts. And so I I had trained myself not to ever get my hopes up about anything because it's just too painful to think that something's going to happen and then have it fall through. So I was just like showing up, doing my job, getting it done, and then for just leaving it alone and trying to forget it, you know, and like, if it happens, it happens. If not, then great. It's exactly how I was before. Um, and California girls was the first song hit that I had written. And, uh, when it came out, it went number one, like immediately. And I just remember like driving in my car that I finally got (laughs) once I had been working with Katie and hearing it on the radio and just being like, Oh my God. But I had like heard my own song on the radio back in the day once or twice, you know, and I was like, okay. And then it just became like a global hit. And then it was just one after another. It was California girls, teenage dream, last Friday night, part of me, uh, wide awake. It, it was just, it just kept coming. And I 
couldn't believe it. And I, I really had a feeling for a minute when that first came out, I had like three songs in the top five in one summer. It was Britney Spears, Tyoker's Dynamite and um, California Girls are Teenage Dream, one of those. And I just, it was so surreal. And I had a moment where I was like, ah, finally, like the hamster wheel inside of me and like the clock that's ticking. That's like, you're getting old, like you better get a hit or you're not going to be relevant anymore. Like I finally stopped and I could take a, a deep breath and feel like satisfied that I had made my mark on pop culture history. But <laughs> what they don't tell you is once you've had a hit, it's like, you better have another one. And like, where's it like whenever there's like a downtime where there, you don't have a hit on the radio, it's like, oh my God, like I'm a failure. Cause it's not like, what have you done? It's what have you done lately? And um, it's just such a quick turnover, you know, and people forget so fast and like staying relevant is, is such a rat race. And, you know, over the years, I, I was, I was so unhappy for so long because I didn't have this thing that I wanted. And then I finally got it and was like very successful and recognized. And I still was unhappy. And I was like, what is wrong with me? And I was talking to a friend who gave me some insights. She was like, you know, what keeps you up at night? And I was just like, success, you know? And she was like, it sounds like you've made success your higher power. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. And that's a really slippery slope. It's mm -hmm. really, it's really dangerous to let fame, validation, success, whatever it is, become the most important thing in your life because you have no control over that. I can't force people to like my music. I can't force a record label to put something out. It's out of my control. So it was important for me to have like a strong spiritual foundation where I could feel like whether or not I made it, I would be okay. And I would still be valuable as a human being because <laughs> it's, it's a scary thing to feel like you're not valuable because your work doesn't do what you wanted it to do, you know? So that was probably like the most important lesson that I've learned is to have a life outside of work because I didn't for a decade. It was you know. a huge part of your identity. And yeah. Life. Mm -hmm. and your personal life. You were dating in it. So it was it was my only identity and it was my it was my entire life. Like I, there were years where I had no social life at all whatsoever other than working. And you know, I missed out on a lot of things because I was just like so obsessed. And like, I worked myself sick, you know? And so it's really important to have a balance of having a social life, having a work life and taking time for self-care and everything. I know that's like, you know, so cheesy and everybody talks about it, but it's so real. Like you really, I've had mental breakdowns because of work. Like who cares? Like just take care of yourself, you know, take care of the people you love and the rest, you know? But do you think that, I mean, chasing these aspirations, and these big dreams. And then once you've achieved them, it's like, well, what's next? Do you think, it, I mean, it's just, it's on, you're on a hamster wheel. It's never mm -hmm. ending. Mm -hmm. When did you finally realize that I'm proud of what I've done? Yes, there are more things I could do mm -hmm. but to try to be more present. I think that, you know, I, I've had 10 number one songs and I've. 10 number one songs. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I've, I've toured the world. I've done all this stuff and I had put out my own artist stuff as well. I put out a song called American girl that did pretty well, whatever. And, um, I realized like I had success. I had recognition, I had money. I was comfortable and I was still working myself to death. Mm. And I was still like the people that I worked with were very demanding of me. And I really like had a breakdown and I was like, I took a minute and was like, why am I working so hard? Like I put in my 10,000 hours and more. I need to allow myself to take a breath and just live. And then once I felt like I got a grasp on that, then I was like, okay, well, like I won this rat race, which by the way, I didn't want to be a songwriter. I wanted to be an artist. Songwriting was my plan B. Like I never planned on being a hit songwriter for other people. And so I took a minute and was like, I'm going to refocus on my artist stuff. And I did that and I'm still doing that. And then during the quarantine, I was like, 
what else do I want to do? Like I can write songs in my sleep. Like what else am I capable of? And so I decided to write a script and make a short film. And that's what I did. And now I, it's really fun to be in like the film industry now, like as a baby, as a rookie, it's fun to be a rookie in a new industry where there's no expectations of me. Nobody's like, this isn't as good as your last thing. Cause it's my first thing, you know? And it's not like, what have you done lately? It's like, what are you doing next? Like, and it's just fun to be a new, the new kid on the block again, after being in this industry for 20 years you know, it's just, it's nice to do something new and to sort of expand my horizons creatively. I do want to get into that. And you are so humble. April Kills the Vibe has won over 10 awards. Actually, I just won my 42nd award, (laughs) which is so insane. It's so insane. Like I, I originally started making April Kills the Vibe because I was sitting around bored in quarantine and I was like, I'm going to make like a scene for my acting reel. And then I didn't like any of the scenes that I found that other people wrote. So I was like, I'm just going to write my own because I've been like thinking about writing this script and I did it and I I made this short. And then I was like, how did the film festivals work? I had only ever heard of like Sundance and like Sharona film, you know, just the stuff you see on the Oscars. Like I didn't even know what a film festival was really. And then I found this website that's like a hub. It's called Film Freeway where it has like thousands of film festivals and you just make a page and then submit it. And I submitted to a couple hundred or 150, I think, film festivals and not expecting to get into any. And then I ended up winning a bunch of awards and I was like, oh, like I, I can have a, yet another life in, in my career. <laughs> I can have another chapter that's completely different. And it's so inspiring and exciting to do something new. So I want to talk about that. You have been very open about your struggles with addiction, of getting sober, of breaking into this industry, you just mentioned of success. So walk us through what the the short film is about and how it has manifested, how, what the response has been. Mm -hmm. So many people I know have, I'm sure come to you and have said that this, this might have changed my life. Open my perspective and eyes. Yeah, you know, I think that in the past decade or so, there's been a lot of female-driven content created by females telling female stories. And um, like, I love Fleabag. I love Killing Eve. There's a lot of stuff like that happening where women are getting, oh yeah, I May Destroy You also was happening, like came out right after I made this film. And I was like, oh, this is like kind of a similar story. and that's okay because this is a common story. So the story is since nobody's seen it and it's not out yet, it's just still in the film festival circuit. It's based on a true story of when I was in the depths of my alcoholism, I went out on New Year's Eve with a friend and uh, I blacked out and came to, and there was a stranger having sex with me. And I don't remember how I got home, but I got home and I, I called my friend that I'd gone out with the night before and asked her like what, what happened? Like, how did I end up there? You know, we went to this party together and I woke up and I was alone with this stranger and, uh, I was met with like slut shaming and victim blaming. And, um, it was shocking and awful. And, uh, so I, I wanted to write a little short film about that experience and, um, and just kind of highlight the idea that, you know, the assault is only part of the mess that's left behind. There's all of the scrutiny from the people in your life, from law enforcement. I didn't get into that part in the film, um, but it's it's a mess because it's really just your word against someone else's unless you go straight to the authorities and, you know, do a kit and the whole thing, which I was just like not in a state to do at the time. And it was a complete stranger. I didn't know what he looked like. I didn't know what kind of car it was. I didn't know where it happened, you know? And, and also I, I play both characters <laughs> in this film. I play April, um, who was me and I play, um, Lola, who was my friend at the time. And when I was writing the screenplay and thinking about the motivations of each character, I was writing from Lola's perspective. And then I was like, Oh my God, like I've done this to a friend. I've had friends who have told me what happened to them who were also alcoholics and or drug addicts or whatever. And me being like, yeah, well, like what, what else is new? You know, like 
you got too drunk. You shouldn't have done this. You shouldn't have done that. Why did you, you know, and it's, and so it was important for me to play both roles, not only to hold myself accountable for my part in that. I mean, I was not as cruel to my, my friends that that happened with as this person was to me, but I wanted to hold myself accountable. And I also wanted to learn to forgive the Lola in my life. And when I made this short film, I really wasn't expecting to have some big emotional epiphany because I've been in years of therapy, you know, I've looked at this, I've thought about it, I've talked it through, but there was something about reenacting this scene that was incredibly cathartic for me and really healing. I really wasn't expecting to have that, but it was, it was really powerful for me. I know that this has moved the conversation forward and that it's brought awareness to a lot of the nuances when people are put in situations like this, not just the victim, but also the friend who is, who becomes entangled in, in the situation as well. What were some of the nuances you explored and even learned about Lola's perspective in a situation like this? I mean, when I was thinking about my own experience when I was the Lola in the situation who was kind of like dismissive of my friend that this happened to, I felt guilty because, you know, I had a friend, it was her birthday. She was my roommate long ago and it was her birthday. We were all at a bar. I, she was wasted, but there was like, all of her friends were there. There was like 15 people there that she went to high school with like good friends. Um, I was actually, this, this had happened to me. Um, I don't know, maybe a year before or whatever I was, I was trying to get sober. So I was like, I'm going to not hang out in this bar too long. Like, this is not a safe place for me to be for my sobriety. I'm just, I'm going to go home, see at home. And then, um, and then the next day I like woke up and, and like a guy left her bedroom and I was like, Oh, like, did you have a little one night stand for your birthday? And she was like, I don't know what happened. And then I was like, wait, what? And then she was like, why did you leave me? And then she started blaming me. And I was like, wait, why is it my responsibility to make sure that you get home safe? Like you have all of these friends and I, I felt defensive and I felt guilty and I completely broke down and was like, I I'm so sorry because this had happened to me. And I was like, I'm so sorry that this happened to you. But she was like really furious with me that I hadn't stayed and held her hand all the way through the night. And like, is that my responsibility? No, but is it something that I should have done? Yes. I, I regret not staying there. But really, and that's what this film is about, is it's about playing the blame game. You know, you're a bad friend or like you're a drunk or whatever it is. Everybody's pointing the finger everywhere except for where it belongs, which is at the perpetrator. (laughs) Um, So there's a lot of different emotions that come up after an assault. And we don't always know the right thing to say. It's awkward. It's uncomfortable. And it's, it's a burden for everyone you know, everyone on, from every angle. Um, so I just wanted to sort of highlight the complicated dynamics between friends and people that are involved in the situation. It's not just the survivor that is affected. It sends a ripple effect throughout your whole friend group, your family, which is why I think a lot of women also just sort of keep to themselves or just be like, Oh, well, I was just drunk. So I'm just going to like keep moving on with my life. And, but you do need to talk about it, even if it's uncomfortable and you need to support your friends when, when something like that happens and not play the blame game. That's really painful. I've been on both sides of it. (laughs) What do you hope this film will do in terms of moving the conversation forward or, or bringing more light into talking about some of the nuances with these dynamics? I mean, what is your hope in once more people are able to watch this? You know, I, when I was writing the information about the movie for this website and whatever, and and for the website, you can go to aprilkillsavive.com and and check out all of the awards and the posters and pictures and stuff in the trailer. I was really struggling with this because I was like, okay, well, like, so what's my thesis here? Like, what, what do I want to achieve? And like, to be honest, I'm still working through it. Like, I hope that people feel seen. I hope that they, they can relate. I mean, I don't hope that they've been through what I've been through, but if they have, I hope they know that they're not alone and that this is so sadly common 
and I, I don't know, I, I, the way that I felt seen when I watched Fleabag, um, <laughs> which is a weird one to be like, Hey, that's me. But yeah, that was me. <laughs> There's something really powerful about not feeling alone. So if I can just make one other girl feel seen, then I guess I, I've done my job. Thank you for writing this and being so brave to share this with the world. It's not easy to do. And I know that this is really going to have a, a positive impact on moving the conversation forward. It's not talked about. I graduated in 2020 mm-hmm. and the conversation that is had today is very different than even a couple of years ago when I was definitely. So it's, it's so needed and it's not talked about enough. So thank you. So I want to ask you about what it is like to get over the hump of being invisible and not being seen and needing validation. Mm. You've worked with such big names. They go by their first name and are recognized by their first name in the industry. Katie, you know, it's Katie Perry, Brittany, that's Brittany mm-hmm. Spears. Jason, Jason Derulo, it's huge mm-hmm. names. You've written with them. You've achieved tremendous success that a lot of people would, would, of course, success is relative, but a lot of people would refer to as success. So how has your thought process evolved and feeling like you've not necessarily been seen and wanted to be the artist to working with some of these big names in the industry and feeling like your work is seen through a different way. Your art is heard. It's felt. I feel when I hear a lot of these Katie songs, Dynamite <laughs> is a great example. I feel when I'm listening to the song. Mm. So how has your, how has that evolved and feeling like you're more invisible behind the scenes to still feeling like your art is being perceived and it's visible and it's being felt? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that, you know, it was really hard for me in the beginning to live in the shadow of some of the biggest artists in the world that were, I was just like, giving my, my energy and my mojo to other artists and helping them shine. And I do love having a muse and I enjoyed it, but it was harder in the beginning. It's than the very beginning. And then there was something really empowering about knowing that I was successful just for my intellectual property, that my brain got me where I am. <laughs> Like I had a moment of being like, because I feel like, you know, especially in the entertainment industry, it's women are forward facing where it's like, oh, like, oh, she's pretty. Oh, she can dance. Oh, she's a singer. Oh, she did. You know, I mean, there are obviously a million women that are behind the scenes that make things happen that are very powerful and successful, but we don't hear their names. But it was nice to know that my brain got me where I was. It wasn't because I was cute. It wasn't because I could do a little dance. It was because I was smart and I knew how to create something and pull a rabbit out of a hat out of thin air. So that was really empowering for me. And once I kind of embraced that, it was like kind of fun to have a secret identity of like, you know, going out to a bar or whatever and having one of my songs come on and like everybody singing along and like not knowing that I'm like, hey, guess what? Like, it's like a fun little secret identity, you know? And also just like, the the older I've gotten, the less I stress about validation and needing everybody to love me. And the most important thing is to enjoy the process. And if I'm not enjoying it, then I'm not going to do it anymore, which is why, you know, I, I got a little burnt out on songwriting and I was like, I'm just going to make a film <laughs> and it's brought me so much joy. And I think that that comes through in the art and Obviously, you know, it's winning awards and and doing well in the film festival circuit and connecting with people on a human level. And so I think that it affects your art. People can hear if you hate what you're doing (laughs) and they can tell, you know. And so like when I'm doing something that my heart is fully in, I feel like the results are better and I connect with more people. But most importantly, my quality of life is better because I'm not doing it for everybody else to let, I'm doing something that I love personally that makes my day-to-day life more enjoyable, you know, and I try to stay out of the results and just enjoy the process. A lot of people would say that sometimes once you achieve a certain level of fame or success or accomplishments that you begin to change your personality, your ego, your identity has changed. How have you been able to ground yourself 
And how do you think you have changed? Has the industry changed you? Have you been changed? You know what? I have a theory that whatever age someone becomes famous is the age that they stay. And so, you know, people, they get famous at 15 tend to like kind of stay there. People that get famous at 21 tend to stay there. And like, I am still not famous (laughs) and that's okay because I've gotten to like live my life and and learn my lessons not on a public forum and grow and evolve and be an adult not in the spotlight. I'm really grateful for that. And I think that had that first record label deal worked out, had I blown up at 17 or 18 years old, because I was so deep in my addiction and also ego, so much ego, so much pride, so much like desperation for everyone to love me. Like, I don't, I think I'd be dead. I don't think I would have survived that. So I'm really grateful to have been humbled as and had to like get knocked down and pick myself back up and get knocked down and pick myself back up. I've built character and resilience and I've just like learned a lot of lessons that I, that you don't necessarily learn when everybody's doing everything for you, you know? So I think humility has been the most important thing that I've learned and I still learn, you know, and I feel like whenever I get too overly confident, the universe is like, no, bitch, you better, you better sit down and be humble. And I'm great. I'm grateful for that. You know, <laughs> I'm sure sometimes people treat you differently or act a certain way if they realize that you are friends or connected to someone. Mm-hmm. So how have you been able to surround yourself with people who have pure intentions and want the best for you and aren't after something that's secondary or artificial or, mm-hmm. or yeah. I feel like the songwriting community, especially is like, you know, a bunch of people that also just Los Angeles in general, everybody knows somebody famous. Like it's really not as crazy as because everyone's used to it. You know, you go to the grocery store and, you know, Jared Leto's there or whatever. Like you see, this is, that's why a lot of famous people live in LA because like they don't get bothered because it's kind of like, Oh, ho-hum. This is just like tinsel town, you know? So like, yeah, there are people that like want to get closer to me because of who I know or what I've done or whatever. But for the most part, I have a big community of songwriters that are in the same position that I'm in, you know? And so it's easy to trust people when I'm like, I, I, I know your motives. And also it's like, that's kind of what makes Hollywood go around. It's really just like, okay, who do you know? And like, how can you help me? And how can I help you? And, you know, people are always like, oh, Hollywood is so fake. Everyone's like fake, nice to each other. And it's like, no, it's like, if you win and I'm your friend, then we both win. And so it's really kind of like a, I scratch your back, you scratch mine kind of thing. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I mean, I think it's important to like stay on a human level and actually like care about people and not fuck them over. But it's, it's really like a, an encouraging community where it's like people want each other to win. It's, it's cutthroat on the business side of things. But I think on a personal level, at least in my experience, it's like, I want my friends to win because then I get to be friends with them and they want me to win because they get to be friends with me and we can help each other. You know, it's really like a a family and it takes, it takes a village (laughs) to make it to the top, you know? So we all got to help each other out. There are so many people listening to this podcast right now. I'm so glad you touched on this because I don't think any other guest you've ever had on the podcast has touched on perspective like that when it comes to success. Lots of people listening who are anxious, concerned, scared, care deeply about the prospects of their career and have big aspirations in life and are often motivated by things like achieving certain goals in life, achieving a certain level of success. And in speaking to someone who has achieved all of that and more, what would you offer to advice to those people listening to this podcast who are trying to chase these big aspirations and dreams and are so relentless in the pursuit of that, that they might lose sight of other things. I would say there's not a most important thing, but one of the most important things that I have learned and that has helped me is to forget competing 
with your peers. Collaboration is a beautiful thing because if you create something with someone else, then they're also invested in it. And then their team of whoever is helping them is invested in it. It broadens your whole net of people that want this project to succeed. You know, I see a lot of like comments on my TikTok and stuff where it's just like, you should just write your own lyrics. Why do you need someone to help you write the lyrics or whatever talking about me, you know, co-writing with Katie or whatever. And I'm just like, collaboration is smart. Like, yes, I can write a song by myself. Yes, Katie can write a song by herself, but like do what's best for the art, not for, not what's best for your ego. Who nobody gives a shit if you write something by yourself. If you do something by yourself, like great, good for you, high five. Then you're on that journey alone. Like collaborate. Sometimes I get jealous of people or I'm just like, whatever. But I find that when I befriend someone and I see them as a human and not as just a competitor, then I do want them to win. And that feels so much better than harboring jealousy and resentment because somebody has something that I want, you know? It's so much healthier to support each other and see each other as humans that are just like trying to express themselves and get by or win whatever it is. And, you know, a little healthy competition is fine, but don't let it destroy you and don't bother comparing and despairing. It's such a waste of time and energy. I would say connect with more people and create things together. Like I said, it takes a village to make something really happen and to really succeed and carrying all of that on your shoulders while you may be proud that you did something all by yourself, it'll take over your entire life. So like get some help and find some like minds and do something together. It's a lot more fun too. I love that so much. And we're going to transition to our lightning round of questions. I'm going to ask you a question. Let me know in a sentence or two, what comes to mind. Okay. What is your morning routine? Oh God. I work way too late. So I wake up way too late. I eat first thing, have to eat. I wake up starving every morning. I eat. I try to do uh, morning pages, which if you haven't read The Artist's Way, that's a great book to learn how to not lose your mind in the creative field. And then, you know, and then I get lost on the internet for a while. <laughs> what are you most proud of? I'm most proud of, I think what I touched on earlier, the fact that I created something with my intellectual property, that my intellectual property is worth something. And then it's not all based on me being a character. It's really about what came out of my brain. I'm proud of that. Uh, any songwriting story come to mind that is funny you would like to share? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I told this story on TikTok, but I'll go ahead and retell it. When I was working, I was simultaneously working on the Britney Spears Femme Fatale album and the Katy Perry uh, Teenage Dream album at the same time. And I was in the studio, I was stuck on this, this song for Britney. And I knew I wanted it to be kind of like a pickup line thing, like a cheesy pickup line. And then Katy Perry walked in wearing like a tight little dress, looking hot. And I, I was like, damn, Katy, if I told you you had a nice body, would you hold it against me? And then I was like, <gasps> Oh my God. Ding, 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 ding. Eureka. And then I ended up writing, hold it against me for Britney Spears. So she was the inspiration for that song. That is one of the best stories. Uh, <laughs> um, so the song Roar, mm-hmm. like you, wrote, you co-wrote, has a lot of implications. What is the number one thing you want people to take away from the song? I mean, Roar is about finding your voice, not being afraid to use it. And that song was born out of like real life situations that both Katie and I were going through and feeling like people were cutting us down or holding us back or underestimating us. And so it was an easy song to write because it was a song that we needed to write. It was a song that we needed to hear. So I would say, you know, encouraging people to have a voice and don't be afraid to use it. What is a shameless plug? My TikTok, I'm I'm new on TikTok, which is so funny. I've been on Instagram for whatever 12 years and I have like 135,000 followers, which is great. And then I get on TikTok for like three months and I have more followers on TikTok than I had <laughs> after a decade on Instagram. But I am still new to it. You know, I would love for people to come check it out. I talk about how I write songs. I I show alternative lyrics, just songwriting tips, etc. And me just being stupid and goofing around. <laughs> What is one lasting piece of advice you'd like to leave with our listeners? Being ambitious is good. And I applaud you all. And I encourage you to follow your dreams and do your thing. 
but success isn't everything. And remember to not put all of your self-worth into your success. And remember that you're still valuable, whether you hit your goal or not, you're still valuable and you're still lovable and you're going to be okay. And you can always redefine what your goals are. If something isn't working, try something new. I'm doing it (laughs) and it feels great. Yeah. That's my advice. It's just like, don't put all of your self-worth into your work because you're more than that. Bonnie, thank you so much for coming on this podcast. So inspiring. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to an episode of Redefining Ambition. If you like what you heard, please make sure to subscribe, rate us, tell your friends, and if there's anyone you think we should have on our show, let me know. Join me next Tuesday for a brand new episode of Redefining Ambition. We'll see you all then. Take care, everyone.